Audi. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Lisa Francesca Nand, and you're listening to the Big Travel Podcast, exploring life stories through travel. It's episode eight, and thanks to you, we're becoming a truly global podcast with listeners all over the world. We've got thousands from the UK and Ireland, pretty much every country and mainland Europe, all over the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Mexico, Chile, the Caribbean, Indonesia, the Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, Russia, China, South Africa, Tanzania. It's so exciting and I'm sure I've missed a few out. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe via whatever app you're using and do please leave us a review. My favourite review on iTunes at the moment says this is travel, yet so much more than travel and I would like to think that's true. And someone else says it doesn't particularly matter if you don't know the guest. Everyone has a fascinating tale to tell about travel and I'm doing my best to choose some really interesting and diverse people for you. So on to today's guest. A man British audiences will recognise as soon as they hear his dulcet voice. And for those of you in more international parts, if you don't know him already, you're in for a real treat. He's one of the UK and Ireland's best-known broadcasters. He grew up in what was essentially a war zone in Belfast, Northern Ireland. He's travelled extensively with seminal programmes such as the BBC Holiday Programme and also How the Other Half Live. He's a huge fan of Manchester United and Hawaii with Elvis Presley would be his dream trip. Notching up an incredible 38 years as a broadcaster, I'm sure he'll want me to emphasise that he did start very young. It's Mr Eamon Holmes. I think we should start off in Belfast, in Northern Ireland, as that's the, where you started off. What was it like growing up there? When I'm presuming by the time you were a teenager, you were actually living in something of a war zone. Oh, definitely, yeah. The first seven or eight years of my life, I mean, I would be blissfully unaware that there was anything different. I remember living in an area which was, was terraced houses, completely sort of Coronation Street houses, and we were on a main road called the New Launch Road. And when I look back at it now, it was quite ideal because we lived beside a fruit and veg shop and, and a general grocer's. So, I mean, it was very rustic. I mean, they would boil beetroots and put them in um, cases uh, for sale. They would have cauliflowers and cabbages and potatoes all lying on the floor. And then you would have boxes of Mars bars and Milky bars and, and various things as well. So it was a sort of mixture of things, but it was very rustic. And the consequence, of course, of having lots of potatoes and soil on the floor and bags of potatoes was that that was against the wall, which was our house, which was where our fireplace was. And... Mice and rodents just used to come through the holes in the wall. So to this day, I have a, a complete fear of mice because uh, when I was four, I went to put on my Wellington boot one day and my mum said, hurry up, hurry up, what's keeping you? I said, mum, I can't get my foot in. <laughs> and I put my foot in and she said, give it to me. And she pulled it off and a mouse jumped out of the, <laughs> the Wellington boot. And it's left me with this uh, 
phobia about mice ever since. But however, beside us was the fruit and veg shop, across the road was the pharmacist, it was a bakery, it was a butcher's, it was an ice cream parlour, would you believe, an Italian ice cream parlour. Four doors down so there was a fish and chip shop, there was a laundrette at the corner of the, the street and the great radical transformation of that, or innovation, was that they introduced showers and you used to be able to put a shilling in or something and get a shower. And my dad thought this was amazing and he would be Friday night and he would go down and have a shower in this laundrette. We, we didn't have a bathroom as such. There was no bathroom. There was an outside loo and you washed in a basin in front of the fire. But they were happy, happy times. Happy times. Now, unbeknown to me, that would have been regarded as a mostly nationalist area. We didn't. We weren't a political household. We didn't really know about it. And we would walk 200 yards to the top of the road in 1966, I think it was, to wave at the Queen, Her Majesty the Queen, coming down the Antrim Road in her limousine. And we were there waving our Union Jacks and whatever, whatever. Within two years, the whole geography of that had changed and the demography of that had changed as well. And the troubles had broken out and any people who were Protestants in that area had moved out. And it was a completely different demographic. It, demographic, it became a Republican area. My mother could sense there was trouble and wanted to get out of that. And we applied for other council housing somewhere else and we we eventually got the council housing my mum was a woman of great sta- is a woman of great standards you know she couldn't she couldn't stand people who weren't clean she could understand poverty but she couldn't understand people who weren't clean and poor you know, she used to say soap and water costs nothing you know you can always wash yourself you don't have to pay for the water and we got a house in a council estate a small mixed council estate which was um, incredible. There were 72 houses there, and it's amazing. I do what I do. At the bottom of the street is a lad called Ian Woods, who's a senior correspondent now for Sky News and has been for many, many years. Across there was a lad called Stephen Bailey, who I met at Roger Moore's memorial, and he was a scriptwriter in one of the Bond films and um, serial dramas like The Bill and things. And there was a an air wing, air commander or something, two doors up, a lad the same age as me. And I just look at the the aspiration of people who were in a council estate like that and people who just wanted to do better for themselves, people with good parents, people with good upbringing. And I suppose for me it was, we, we escaped a lot of, we didn't, didn't escape a lot of troubles, that's not true. We escaped a lot of the intensity of the troubles from a Republican area, but we then ended up in an area where being one of only two Catholic families in that estate of 72 houses you were very restricted in where you could travel or what you could do or you couldn't go to youth clubs or anything like that I don't feel I had a teenage teenage life but what I did do was watch television a lot and study television a lot and understand or try to get an understanding of what was going on in Northern Ireland and I had this sort of mission to explain and I do think if you want to be a good snooker player watch lots of TV and watch good snooker players you want to be a good golfer do exactly the same good tennis player whatever and I wanted to be a TV reporter and I watched the best there was You were very young when you got your first TV job 21? When I was 11 I knew exactly what I wanted to do and no 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 I was on TV at 19 so the, the thing was when I was 18 my mother had absolutely no aspiration for us. I mean, her, her idea was you go out and you get a job and that was it. And I was accepted for journalism college after my A-levels. And my mother said, 
what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to be a reporter, Mum. And she said, don't be ridiculous. You'll go out and you'll get a real job. You'll get a, a job with steady pay out there and whatever. And I always, that's why I always think what I do is not a real job. And I became a training manager at Primark. And I worked there for a year. And it was horrendously tough. In many ways, it was the best thing ever happened to me because I realised this is a tough job. I have huge respect for people in retail, but it's not for me. So I then decided at 19... I am going to journalism college, 18, 19 I was. So mum said, what are you? I said, mum, I'll take a job in a bar. I'll do this, I'll do that. I had three jobs in three different bars. I said, but I'm going to journalism college. And it, those days you were grant aided. You got a thousand quid a year or something, what it was. So I took my grant, I bought myself a 500 pound car and I then went and worked in bars every night of the week. And I suppose why Primark was so good for me, it made me fear having to take a real job. Was that your last re real job then? Yes, I would say so. <laughs> I would say so. In, in the College of Business Studies, they would say, what do you want to do in journalism? And people would say, I want to write for The Guardian. I want to write for The Times. I want to do this. I want, it's all writing. And they'd come to me and I'd say, I want to be a TV reporter. And everybody would go, <laughs> and I was regarded as the half-wit of the class. Although I did come first. I, I was the pupil of the year. I got a prize and everything for that because I think my determination, I'm so pleased to be there. Anyway, I went off and working, doing what I was doing in a building magazine, and I got a phone call from my journalism lecturer, and she said, Eamon, you know why you always said you wanted to be on telly? Well, Ulster Television are looking for a farming reporter. Would you be interested? And I said, I know nothing about farming, Mrs. Fitzpatrick. And she said, rule one of journalism, Eamon, find out. And so I did, and so it's always been, whether it's been about horse racing, soap operas, politics, you name it, you find out about it. But naively, I just thought it was a simple thing of doing my audition. But I did do my audition. But I was up against very seasoned agricultural reporters and editors and all sorts of things and people who expected the job to go to them. But at 19, the job went to me. And I thought everybody would be pleased for me. But they tried to boycott me from the National Union of Journalists for so, so come up with some excuse that I wasn't trained. But I was trained and I was going to train on this job. And, and there was all sorts of obstacles put in my way. But that was my first experience of you know Eamon don't think people are happy for you doing well because they're not actually so I got on television and I was 19 by 21 I was hosting the tea time program an hour-long politics a news program and by 23 I was hosting the Northern Ireland section of the general election by 25 26 I was in England I was poached by the BBC daytime TV so actually most of what happened to me happened very very early in, in life I was given great responsibility very early and I suppose when I was 20 I was acting as if I was 40 and now that you know I'm much older I'm acting as if I'm 25 now but it was it was a tremendous privilege. It just would not happen, they say. It would not happen now. You would not get anybody. Matter of fact, I don't think it's ever happened. 21, being given a tea time programme. This was in a war zone. I'm interviewing Paisley. I'm interviewing Adams. I'm interviewing the chief constable. You know, you're doing all these things. You're hosting the general election at 23. Believe me, it shouldn't have happened. It doesn't happen anymore. But my goodness me, for me, unbelievable. Why do you think it did happen? I mean, you must have been good at your job. I think it was technique. I think what I am and what I always have been is good at technique or understanding how to broadcast. So most people think it's about brains and, you know, uh, looking brilliant or whatever it is. Yeah, it looks, I think looks help. But I do think looks help. And I used to have them. But it's about an indefinable thing as well. It's about likability. <laughs> I mean, if I have that, thank you, God, that's great. But I would judge it in other people. 
There's other people who just have likability. It's not about, please no one ever think it's about looking slim and looking gorgeous and being very, very smart, because it's actually not. It must be about confidence. I mean, I'll bring it back to travel in a minute, but do you ever get nervous? You do all these very high-profile jobs. I used to get nervous, but I haven't been nervous in at least 10 years. Not once. That must be lovely. I think it is. But I sit and I go, why? Am I, is there something hormonally happened to me that I don't have adrenaline anymore? But at least 10 years, maybe longer. And don't think I don't ask myself, I don't question myself. I watch my wife, I do a lot of programs with my wife, and I watch her shaking. I watch her shaking. And I stand and I think, with the same age, with the same experience, why is she shaking? She's very nervous about things. And then she just begins to make me slightly nervous. But really, there is nothing about broadcast that would phase me. Not being prepared for an interview would worry me. But there's nothing about presenting because, believe me, Lisa, this is the easiest job you or me will ever do or anybody will ever do. And it is made to seem difficult by people who want to make themselves very important or seem very important. I'm talking about executives or people who really don't understand what it's about. So, you know, there's very there's nobody who's going to come to me and tell me how to how a programme should be done or whatever it is. I'll sit quiet, I'll listen to what they have to say, and then I'll say, well, if it was me, I mean, you're in charge, but if it was me, I would do it like this or do it like that. And you either will go along with that or you won't. So I've got to bring it back to travel because I could chat to you all day, but no, mm. we don't have all day. When you were growing up in Belfast, having showers in the laundrette, which is something mm. I've never heard of and sounds wonderful, mm. was there any money for travel? Well, we did travel. My, my father had a carpet van. My father was a carpet fitter and he had a van. And it was called the Magic Carpet. It had a, a genie on the side of it with a magic carpet. It wasn't his van, it was his works van. And we were all thrown in the back of it with two big rolls of felt to bounce off because there were no seat belts. And we went on... You see, Northern Ireland is blessed with the most beautiful coastline and you are what I dreadfully miss about uh, my homeland is water and, and sea in particular. So therefore, my dad was very good at pushing the limits and, and saying to my mum, right girl, where will we go today? What will we do today? Let's go down the coast. Let's go up. There was down the coast, which was County Down, and there was up the coast, which was County Antrim from Belfast. So therefore, we would spend most of our weekends by the seaside in, in some form or other. And it was, it was a lovely, lovely experience. So from that point of view, family were adventurous, but there was nothing for foreign travel. Foreign travel did not happen to me until I was 18. And my then girlfriend, who then went on to be my wife, first wife, her family were all going en masse to Portugal. And so the idea, everybody was going on holidays. Everybody had the big uh, holiday brochures, which they took out in January and they decided where to go. So I asked my mum and dad, could I go? And they said yes. And I went and I was so nervous getting on that Aer Lingus plane from Dublin. And we flew to Faro Airport. And funny enough, Portugal has remained a stable of my, my travels. I'm very confident Portugal. I like Portugal very, very much. Describe to me your move to London. What was London like when you moved? When well, you were 25? Man Manchester was my first big move. That's that's where BBC were, were located then. And uh, the programme I worked on called Open Air from Oxford Road in Manchester, BBC HQ there. And Manchester was the most wonderful city because the people were northern, the people were very like Belfast people. It was big, a big place, but it had football. It had Manchester United. It had where George Best had played. And it was... It was intimidating, but it was good. I got used to it quite quickly. It was the best place to go to. And then that job came to an end five years later, and I was very sad. I didn't expect it, but it gave me an insight into TV, which is just ruthless. 
TV's not about if you're good or bad. It really is just does somebody in authority like you or not. We got a new boss. The previous one did like me. This one came in and thought, nah, I don't like him or anything he does. Goodbye. So I was married. I had uh, one child and one on the way then. And that was that. Out of a job, mortgage, whatever. No idea what to do. My then wife wanted to move back to Belfast. So I said, look, okay, I'll stay on here. And... Um, try and get work elsewhere and I got loads of work in you know small jobs sports reporter on BBC breakfast uh, news regional then there was regional television so you could work in Leeds you could work in Cardiff you could work in Birmingham you could work in Glasgow you know all these places were there to, to have jobs in Liverpool and I did that and that was very very busy and then GMTV came along in 1993 and the rest is history I suppose. When your career was starting to take off where did you travel to, either for work or Well, for I worked pleasure? for the holiday programme. I got a job in 1990 for a BBC holiday programme, which nearly broke me because they paid you £50 a day. So I did, I did one year, I did 10 weeks of filming. I think I was getting 250 quid a week. So at the end of that, what's that, £2,500. But the trouble is I had a tax bill of about £7,000 from two years previously. So it didn't add up. It was hard work. And I remember that I never once came back with a TAM you know, so you think you're on this film and you're supposed to look, hey, this is brilliant. But it was hard work, hard work. And I got terribly homesick. I, well, I'm not a natural traveller. No one in my family are natural travellers. I think it has to do with my mum, really. Warning is, oh, you don't want to be going there. Oh, no. My mum my mom has never been anywhere, really. You know, it's, she had to come to Manchester for my wedding, uh, but she, that's the only time. And she said, never again. She wouldn't go anywhere else. So um, there's no wonderlust in our, in our uh, family really. So when you have been out of your comfort zone, which it mm. sounds like has been quite a lot, where has been the most out of your comfort zone destination that you've been? My only out of my comfort zone would have been when I was homesick and that's for different reasons. But when you stop and you look in awe at what, what you see, travel is an amazing thing and I do believe in that thing that travel broadens the mind and I would prescribe that you know, particularly Northern Ireland and the troubles that uh, everybody has there, I think the great thing to understand people and to understand there's a bigger world. Everybody in Northern Ireland should be prescribed, uh, you know, two weeks abroad somewhere to see that there is something else to life. But for me, amongst the many things I've looked at in awe has been Monument Valley in Utah in the USA. And for me, it was a scene of so many Westerns. I'm a big Western aficionado. And um, I like to see all these John Ford Westerns, John Wayne westerns that had been filmed there and realize oh my goodness this is a landscape that looks like mars it's red with big rock outcrops and to me that was probably the most wondrous thing that i've ever seen and, and been involved in and i recommend it to anyone particularly if you like westerns has travel changed the way you see the world then yes because i'm not one of these people actually that would say oh well you've got to live there you've got to be there I do think as I get older, I would like to live in somewhere that has a better climate than where I am at the moment. But I do think that home is a very good place. There's a lot you can say or do, but actually home's fine. If I had a sea view somewhere, whether it was winter, whether it was sun, I would, I think I'd be very happy. We're thinking of moving out somewhere. We used to live in Brighton and I love it so much. But we were filming in Brighton last week to do with the litter problem of the council and the fines that the council are putting on people. Ruth and I drove around Brighton in a bin lorry, oh, nice. giving an amnesty for it. 
but I would... You could move to Brighton with me. I don't mean move to Brighton. <laughs> yeah, well, that's fine. Nice the offer. <laughs> Get a big house. The, how the other half lived. Yes. Now, that has taken you to some... Yeah. How, how on earth did you get the gig? Was that your idea that you said, I'd like to travel the world or the UK and look <laughs> well, at the... It's very funny. It started out as, you know, one of those, if I had a fiver for every time someone wanted me to do a documentary where I get on a train and go round Ireland, I would be a very rich person. Everybody seems to want, oh, we'll get Eamon, and well, this time they wanted Eamon and Ruth to travel, and that we were going to very ordinary places to see horseshoes being made in Huddersfield or wherever it happened to be, you know. And and that was and, and I thought I thought well if you're going to do that you, we might as well go I mean it takes me as long to get to the north of England as it does to continental Europe so why don't we do other things and and then the idea evolved and I said you know people are just you know we're we're in, a, we're in austere times we could look at the ridiculousness of wealth we could do that I was watching your Dubai episode that looked yeah. like a lot of fun yeah. Yeah, that was done up between Christmas and New Year. It's getting time to do them. But then you do see, I mean, there's wealth, what we all perceive to be wealth, which is having a nice car, maybe a bit of a conservatory, maybe somebody's got a caravan down in Brighton. They're wealthy, they're well off. Oh, no, no, no. Residual wealth. People who have so much money, people who when they go to bed, when they go on holiday, whatever they do, they're making money. The money just does not stop because it probably comes out of the ground oil or coal or gas or something like that. Something that grows on trees, maybe, uh, yeah. <laughs> in South America. Uh, yeah. They're rich beyond belief. They couldn't spend their money if they tried, really. So that's the sort of people that we, we tend to be dealing with. I guess people have this perception that people in the broadcasting world are sort of raking it in as well. But I mean, I know and you know that it's not necessarily... Not necessarily so. I mean, there are people who are raking it in broadcasting, and the differential is massive, absolutely massive. 10 times, 20 times, 50 times. And, you know, with the exception of maybe people like Anton Deck, who you can understand why and how that, that is the case, broadcast is a strange world. Why is he worth that and she's worth that? So have there been any negative experiences when you've been abroad or travelling somewhere? I always think sickness is an awful thing. I think when you're, you're sick, you feel vulnerable, and if you're abroad, you feel doubly vulnerable. So sickness has to be avoided. It's never a, never a nice thing. Turbulence on a plane is is a scary thing. And it can be a particularly awful thing if it goes on for a long time. And I've had too many of those to uh, for it to be comfortable. However, the plane hasn't come down yet. So, <laughs> so everything's great. I mean, you go on a cruise ship, it's great until you hit a storm, you know, cyclone or whatever it happens to be. You know, in the brochure, it's wonderful, but you have to be prepared for all eventualities, it has to be said. But I do think, I do think it's a marvellous thing. I mean, if we all had a million quid in the bank and didn't have to work, you could go off around the world and you could say, this is wondrous. I'm not, I wasn't the sort of person, Lisa, who, when I was 18 or 19, fancied backpacking around the world. Not for me. Now that I've tasted, you know, decent travel, decent hotels, whatever, that's all I want. I don't want to do it any other way. I like the good life associated with it. As a massive Manchester United fan, do you travel with the team? Follow them anywhere? I have been offered to travel with the team a couple of times, but it hasn't worked out because of other work commitments. I am not a fan of following them everywhere because I don't like the idea of being beaten up by riot police and be, being tear gassed. So I love the comfort of Old Trafford. I love the fact that I go there and it's my people and everybody's friend and it's a, like a lovely big family. It's wondrous. When I go to away football grounds, sometimes, you know, it can be a little bit more uncomfortable. But 
luckily I am now at a stage where people invite me. Sometimes they say, please come and come to our boardroom and have our sumptuous hospitality. And I say, oh, why not? Why not? And that's lovely. And it's not so much me as for my kids. When I, when I say my kids, my kids are all growing up. My youngest one's 16. But when you see it in their eyes, when they think, oh, my goodness, I can't believe we're here. It's an amazing bonding process. I mean, if football's your thing, to be able to bond with your son, your daughter, you know, they might not have politics in common with you or, or music tastes or lots of things. But when it comes to football, it's like it's one religion, which is which is a lovely feeling. You're on Biggleton, which my kids love, by Do the way. Do they? Yeah, they absolutely adore it. I think it's a real, I don't know what the feedback is you're receiving, but it's a real success in my house, at least. That's what I'm worried about. I might have to do another series. Oh, it can't, um, it can't be that bad. You just sit in a room well, with a microphone. Well, you do, like, well, some nice songs. Well, well, except, you know, they came to me, the BBC came to me and said, would you be the voice of Biggleton? And I said, sorry. And they said, we've got this idea of this little town that exists and it's run by kids and we'd like you to be the voice. And I thought, well, why do you want me? And said, because you have a very friendly, lovely voice. And I said, well, that hasn't always been said, but um, right. So they, they made me do an audition. They asked, well, they asked me to do an audition, and part of the audition was to sing Nelly the Elephant, um, which I did, and they were bowled over by this. So I just Strangest think, audition you've ever had. Well, I just think nobody, somebody else has turned it down, and they've come well down the line to me. So it was the reason I did it was that it's one of those challenges in life. You're asked, so why not? Why not? If people think it's good, then wonderful. But nobody in my family listen to nobody absolutely not not my wife not my children nobody so thank you for listening that's very kind of you you have to thank my five-year-old and three-year-old that's good but i do remember those days where you know i constantly had to buy my kids the outfits or play the vhs of postman pat fireman sam teletubbies you know whatever it happened to be so all that comes comes back to me and that's what i was thinking of when i was recording that yeah so it's different you Oh, incredibly busy. You're doing this morning still? Do this morning, fill in a GMTV show on talk radio. We've got um, a new series on Channel 5 called Do the Right Thing, uh, which requires a lot of filming. We've got um, How the Other Half Lives, and we have two, two documentaries on sleep coming out as well. Why sleep's so important? What happens when you don't get enough of it? Why do you not get enough of it? What can you do to help yourself sort of thing? So, so it's something that affects everybody, yeah. Having had kids that don't sleep, I'm still, my brain has just melted in the yeah. last five years. I don't know if I'll ever get that back, actually. I worry about well, it. Well, I, I did 28 years of breakfast television um, constantly, and you're right. I mean, although for the last year and a half, I've guessed, I've guessed it, but that's all I've done. I genuinely feel I've started to heal, but there's damage that you'll never heal, and habits and... You know, you double your body weight for what I did, and there's just all sorts of things wrong with you. And it's shift work for anyone who does shift work. Please limit yourself. Please be aware. I know, you know, people have to do it because that's their living, but be very, very aware of it. And I think now also there are no benefits with shift work. It used to be in days of old, or you get double time or time and a half or whatever. But now it's just regarded the same as any other time of the day. But it's not. It's it not. It's not. awful. I used to do overnights here at Talk Sport, and it messes with your circadian rhythm. And if you like about w weight gain and anything you eat, just seems to just go on. Irritability. Yeah. Yeah. Memory. 
uh, adrenaline rush, you know, all, all sorts of things like that, diabetes, um, yeah, th there's so much there's damage. I think studies uh, that said that links it to cancer as well, actually. Oh, stop, stop. Anyway, yeah, that's t mm -hmm. totally by the point. Um, uh, do you have any travel stories that you feel that I've missed before I ask you my last question? Anything exciting or interesting or amusing that's happened to you in another country, been mugged in? Rio or whatever? No, no. I would like to go to Rio. I'd like to go to the Carnival. I would like to go to the Mardi Gras. I would like to see the Northern Lights. Um, so there's a number of things on my list that I, w that I would like to do. I wouldn't like to die of altitude sickness at Machu Picchu or wherever. No, I wouldn't like to do that. But I think there's a lot more to see and do. Maybe experiences like the Calgary Stampede and things. There's experiences that I think I would like to do. But it's. I honestly say, Lisa... And I'm sure you're the same. I don't like airports. I really don't. I'm quite phobic about airports. I think there should be more airports and smaller ones, not less and bigger ones. But when you get to the other end of wherever you're going, sometimes, just sometimes, you smell the air, you look at the sky, or you look at the horizon, and you think, wow. And that's what it's all about. That's what travel's all about. And equally as lovely coming home as well, I would agree. I agree, yeah. My last question is about music, and to me, music and travel go hand in hand, maybe mm. because I've got time, more time to listen to music and indulge in it when I'm away. If you could pinpoint any song or musical moment that reminds you of a moment in time, particularly related to travel, what would that be? When I was growing up in Belfast, 1973, something incredible happened. The king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, released an album called... Aloha from Hawaii, and it actually just wasn't Aloha from Hawaii, it was called Live by Satellite Aloha from Hawaii. So it was a taped musical concert, which became an album as well. And I'm pretty sure to say it was recorded in what was then termed quadraphonic sound, and it remains the biggest selling album ever in quadraphonic sound. So this was all, all fantastic. The wonderful thing about Aloha from Hawaii was that it was from Hawaii. And Elvis Presley was there. And I've never been to Hawaii, but I've always thought, I want to go to Hawaii. I want to wear one of those garlands. I want to see an Elvis impersonator there. I want to see people in boats and bobbing up and down around the coastline. All the images that you have about Hawaii, beaches, volcanoes, helicopters, goodness knows what. I hope I wouldn't be disappointed. But it's always... And, and if I was stranded on a desert island, there really is only one album that I would want with me, which is Elvis Aloha from Hawaii. And there's so many songs I could choose from it, but I suppose to me the one that always makes me laugh, it always makes Ruth laugh, and my kids, when I start singing it, is Burning Love, it's called. I'm just a hunk of hunk of burning love. Ooh, I'm just a hunk of hunk of burning love. He sings it much better than me, but I can do all the actions. I just remembered, actually, I walked past you at the Elvis gig at the O2. Were you there? I was there, yeah. It was yeah. amazing. You were going, you know, yeah. it, was a, it wasn't a moment to sort of grab you from the crowd and go, hi. <laughs> well, it was incredible, wasn't it? Incredible. But you see, I've been to see that six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. I, I don't know how much, but... It, you think, well, it's Elvis on screens. That's just like watching a movie. No, within 30 seconds, you believe he's there. You believe he's there, and you believe you're witnessing that concert. Marvellous. He's just my man. He's my man. Thank you so much. Thank I really you. appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> Maybe next time we'll do it from a desert island. Yes, that we go to Hawaii. <laughs> With the discs. With Elvis. <laughs> Thank you.
Who knew Eamon Holmes once had a job in Primark? Thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast, wherever in the world you might be. We release a new episode with a sparkling new guest every Tuesday, so I do hope you'll continue to join us. See you soon. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.